here we are again. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) I just had a wave of rage trying to find things on the internet. Yeah, I know. You really... Very bad. Oh, this close sales. You're very ill-tempered. What's going on? Why are you so ill-tempered today? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> just so annoyed. You know that thing where you're actually okay to deal with big things, but like tiny things happen. Like, why in the house of a professional pair of adults is there not a single pen? Like, how? 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 This is all I do is write things down. Why? No pens. I buy them constantly. And then just nothing. And the only thing I can ever find in the drawer where there's supposed to be pens is dead textures or uh, lead pencils that are broken. And then you've got to find a sharpener and you just say, I just want to leave a note. How hard can it be? Are you okay? <laughs> no, but it's also – I Ditto hairbands. <laughs> I noticed the same thing with um, – where you think you're sort of chugging along okay and then a minor thing like no pens or whatever comes along. And then I go from sort of zero and okay oh, yeah. to 100% full-fledged <laughs> rage. Somebody crossed a road in front of me with children in tow, not on a zebra crossing, and there was a zebra crossing like, yeah. you know, 30 metres away. Yeah. And so I sort of like gestured Got out like – broke their arm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I yep, gestured yep. like, "Are you kidding me? Like, there's a zebra so, crossing right so there." So was this both hands, hands like palms to the air, like what the? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Letting uh, go of the steering wheel to do that, I'm assuming. Well, I stopped, so I didn't okay. run them down. All right. Yeah. Um, and so I did that, and then the woman did like, you strike your forehead in a kind of like <laughs> "Mamma mia" kind of thing as well. It was a little bit. Quite... It's a little bit like that. It was like I'd say low grade, like, "Are you joking?" Sort yeah. of vibe. Okay. The woman then like spat on my bonnet and gave me a mouthful and so then I wound down the window and just went the full like are you kidding me and just went completely and then sort of spat on your bonnet spat on my bonnet and then I sort of drove off and thought and I was sort of really rattled by it because I thought where did that rage come from like it's just yeah it was really really bizarre I was rattled by it not by her spitting on the car which I just thought was well actually that's the bit that freaks me I'm just like (laughs) I was just couldn't believe how. Who also who's got that much spit at exactly that moment? Like I'd have to do a bit of. I'd yeah, to, I'd really have to summon up some spit. I wonder if, in the same way that I later on thought, "Well, where did that rage come from?" She was lying in bed at three a.m. going, "I spat on somebody's car." No, she'd be like, "I spat on Lisa's <laughs> car." Imagine if that, as the gob is flying, you just like, "Oh my god, I that's, think that's that. Lisa." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let, Imagine she, if she was a chatter. No, she wouldn't be. No chatter would spit I don't on think chatter spit. Remember the time we were in your car together and you got pulled over for illegal driving? Yes, I, I remember that. You were kind enough to take a picture of it happening live and tweet it to the world. Thanks again for that. I wish I'd been rolling actually because you were so funny and it, I could see that the police officer was trying to not laugh. Oh, what's just speaking of you being I just so did, funny? I just pulled a really bodgy right hand turn. That's what happened. Yep. Well, can you just say what that line was that you had that I complimented you on on the weekend that was in your it was in your piece about Barnaby Joyce going to the back bench? Oh, no, it was just a tweet actually because I was thinking – I was sitting there thinking, God, you know, like everyone's very excited about what's going on with Barnaby. But like the upshot is that he's on the back bench now and so is obviously Tony Abbott who, like the story that I think – flew under the radar a bit last week when all the Barnaby stuff was happening was that Tony Abbott like turned up the volume to about 18, you know, on the I am overlooking my earlier commitment not to snipe from the <laughs> sidelines front. Like because he wrote a, quite a bananas opinion piece for the Australian about how, you know, I'm the only one in here that knows about winning. <laughs> anyway, so um, I just did a tweet saying that now 
Malcolm Turnbull, I hold government by one vote, has not one but two former leaders with time on their hands on the backbench, both with a furious, burning conviction that Malcolm Turnbull is personally responsible for the end of their careers, you know, and um, and they'll be like turning up at periodic intervals, you know, like a bloodied ghost at the feast. Anyway, and then I called them dueling banquos. <laughs> that is so <laughs> clever. That is so clever. I, I was very pleased. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. I, is that something you've been sitting on for about five or six years, waiting for there to be um, an occasion for that to be wheeled out? No, actually. No. Um, <laughs> actually, Kaz Cook said, how long have you been sitting on that? <laughs> I went, about 17 years. That's not true. I did just pop into my head, but it was uh, a very satisfying popping sound. It's I, I, uh, I've already told you this story, but I'll repeat it for the benefit of the listeners. Um I was reading something the other day and the word clandestine was used in it. I thought, oh, clandestine, that is such a good word. Like, mm. Mm, I need to get that into something. So I quickly ran into my uh, room. It was about 10 p.m., jumped out of bed, ran into my study, wrote clandestine on a post-it note and banged it on the table and then went back to bed. And I thought later, imagine if I died in my sleep or something and everyone came the next morning and all that was on my desk was a post-it Rose note bond. with the word clandestine <laughs> on it. Like, well, she, well, she, she, she was very secret. interested in the Americans. Like she hassled her friend for years to listen to that. And thing. she had that crazy idea for a book about a, a journalist who actually was a secret it's agent. It's all making sense. <laughs> Anyway, I she did, said she was an accountant. I did, I did manage to work it into something, but now I feel like I've been a bit try hard. You've because, clandestined yourself. Yeah, yeah it's, it's. We had this similar conversation about um, the adverb "dementedly." Remember? Yes. Yeah. Awesome word. Yeah. yeah. And I subsequently put it into the uh, rewritten Malcolm Turnbull essay that came out uh, just before the election. Uh, that he was dementedly bereaved. Yeah, that's at the death of his father. Demented is an excellent word, I yeah. reckon. Um, I still have been thinking about that one that you read aloud with Martin Amos oh, about. Yeah. Was it bloater? No. Yeah, the, yeah, the his his account of, of sorry, yeah, oh. his his account of um, not being able to read um, Ada by Vladimir Nabokov. I reckon he had burster written on his. Um, desk just sitting yeah. there for quite a while now there's a couple of things you've been bursting to tell me about and every time we do a podcast yeah. you go i haven't yet talked about blah blah blah. i haven't yeah. yet talked about it so and of course i'm giving you the traditionally, stage <laughs> i remember anything oh that's right i read uh manhattan beach um by jennifer egan yeah now what is this about well it's kind of this it's not really a historical novel it's it's a novel about uh a girl called Anna, and it's set in Brooklyn um, in um, the 1930s. So, and she, it starts off when she's a child. Um, she has a father who who disappears, and the father was sort of vaguely associated with this sort of stylish gangster figure. And it's not quite sure exactly what their relationship is, but the father disappears, and she um, then grows up with her mother and her disabled sister. And she goes to work in a munitions yard um, because it's all about the war effort. And she um, has ambitions to become a Navy diver, you know, which she duly does. But it's – the whole thing unspools over the course of her life and you start finding out more about the father and what happened to him and um, also more about the life of the gangster. So it sort of, um, you know, it alternates between the storylines and it jumps around a bit um, temporally. But it's, it's, 
I found it a bit of a slow start, but by by the end, I really I could not put it down. And like Jennifer Egan is a bit of a superstar, I think. Like her um, former previous novel, A Visit from the Goon Squad, was sort of hysterically well received. And um, this one is just it's beautiful. And um, I'm not normally mad for historical novels, and mm. it's sort of a strange thing for her to do. Like, I mean, people, I think, when Manhattan Beach came out, thought, oh, wow, like this is just not what we were expecting from Jennifer Egan. But it is um, it is a really great piece of work, I think. Yeah. Is it um, – I mean, I never read A Visit from the Goon Squad, but the title made me assume it was like a sort of Leanne Moriarty-esque novel that one but is it more like literature in inverted commas jennifer egan yeah oh no she's oh. she's you know a serious writer <laughs> yeah. not that leanne Moriarty's not but you know what i mean like it's the difference between you know the stuff that gets shortlisted for bookers and the stuff that yeah, no, but sells the, a ton but the gets overlooked. squad did win us some sort of excuse me while i hastily with my non-functioning um internet but i guess i'm trying. I, all I'm trying it, to establish is, is it like Leanne Moriarty or is it like Zadie Smith? Like it's what's more the... Zadie Smith. Okay. Um, I'm pretty sure I'll just, I'll just go to my go-to literary awards index that I, <laughs> I keep um, constantly updated. Uh, Chad, just entertain yourself by listening to the plane noise. I know. See, that's the um, – okay, so that won the Pulitzer Prize oh, in 2011. Okay. Oh, mate, I should read that. Yeah. Now that the Pulitzer people think it's all right, <laughs> you might dare to dip a toe in that murky water. And there's another book that you've been going on about quite a bit that oh, I'm really liking. So this is actually a book that I um, am, am not yet finished with, but I am completely devouring. It's, a, it's by a Finnish writer and it's called They Know Not What They Do. Um, it's the winner of the Finlandia Prize because I know you're interested in <laughs> Books that have won awards. Also, that's written on the front, so I didn't have to really even know it. So it's it's also written by a man. (laughs) So um, that's my retort to my friend Sebastian, who um, recently observed that I no longer read books by men. Not true. (laughs) There's this one. Uh, So it is a finished novel, but it is also unfinished because I'm only halfway through. Oh bummer! Because it looks good. I'd like to take it. It's awesome. Is it a pay? It says it's perfect for fans of Jonathan Franzen and Dave Eggers. It's literary. It's literary page turn. (laughs) It's an LP. That looks good. Can you wipe that off by Easter? It's great. It's really, really good, and um, it's it's set partly in Finland. The story is that there's this um, guy, a young academic, um, who meets has an affair with and uh, falls in love with and also crucially gets pregnant, a Finnish student that he meets at a conference or something. He dumps his um, uh, American fiancé um, and much to the chagrin of his um, uh, wealthy parents um, buggers off to Helsinki and has this baby and is very unhappy in, in Finland and it it's all very dark and everybody's unsatisfied and she thinks he's having an affair with a, a, another student and blah, blah, blah. And so he ends up um, taking off back to America and leaving this um, Finnish wife and his baby son and then doesn't see the son again for um, decades really. Mm. And so the story follows his life and work and he um, is uh, kind of like a neuroscientist and he does experiments that involve animals and he starts getting targeted by animal rights activists. And meantime, 
the two daughters that he subsequently had with another American wife are teenagers and they're getting very weirdly involved with this sort of creepy um, software organisation that's kind of Apple, but mm. it's called something else. Um, anyway, it's really a, it's a, it's a really modern book about um, modern relationships and modern parenting as well, like this anxiety that he feels about his daughter being drawn in. This company is sort of like wooing her because she's got a high social media profile and is giving her gifts and these sort of strange psychiatric mm. drugs and strange th- – yeah, it's really creepy and it makes you – very frightened about um, the modern world into which we're all toppling. Oh, that um, sounds good. And is it a page turner? Yeah, it really is. And it's also funny and, and a bit quirky. Um, you know, it's one of those books where every couple of pages there'll be a – there'll just be this funny little observation or a um, form of words that is amusing or sort of tweaking on some level. Oh, yeah. great. It's I, great. I can't I'm really you said the title. It's They Know Not What They Do. They Know Not What They Do. Wait, and would it be pronounced Yussi? Yussi, J-U-S-S-I, Yussi Valtonen. And, um, yeah, I'm loving it. It's really great. Excellent. Very good. I am reading uh, and nearly finished – the Churchills by Mary S. Lovell. Oh, yeah. Now, you put me on to Mary S. Lovell because you gave me for Christmas one year her book about the Mitfords. Gills. Um, which I think might even just be called the Mitfords uh, or the Mitford the Sisters Mitford Girls, or something. I think it's Mitford called. Girls. She writes, she writes sort of nonfiction history. Guaranteed the history purists would probably find something to criticise. But she writes it in a very, very engaging way. And yeah. rather than it being, um, you know, about events, which sometimes history I find can be written about events. She makes it about personalities and relationships, so mm. I find that much more absorbing. Yep. So um, it's mostly about – it's a bit about Churchill's sort of ancestors and mm. then um, his childhood and whatnot, and then it's largely about, you know, his life and it's sort of done a lot through the prism of his relationship with Clementine. Yeah. I didn't realise they the Churchills are related to the Mitfords. Yeah, yeah. Um, and well, it's just the, the Churchills pop up a little bit in the Mitford Girls. I wonder if that's how Lovell made the jump. She's like, ooh, here's another. Probably, yeah, yeah. I would guess so. But there's it, again, it's one of those books where sort of like The Crown, you know, we talk, well, this is the reason I'm reading yeah. it actually because of The Crown because yeah. I put me down a Churchill rabbit hole. It's one of those books where then as we – she wrote another book that I loved called um, – no, sorry, someone else wrote this book. It was called The Swans of Fifth Avenue. Oh, yeah, right, oh, okay. God, I love yeah, that. Yeah, you bought us with that before. <laughs> you know, I it, still haven't read that. No, oh, no, you'd really yeah. like it. That wanted set me on a thing to want to know about these socialites who were in Babe Paley and these various women who were in it. I'd just like to say Babe Paley. What a great name. Yeah. Um, this one, there's a woman in it who fascinates me who was the first wife of – Churchill's son, Rand of Churchill, oh, yeah. her name's Pamela Harriman. She became – she was just one of these women who – she's described as like just a magnet to men. And the list of her lovers is like, oh, my – you know, um, um, Edward Murrow and just everyone who's anyone. And she ends up with Avril Harriman, the diplomat, um, living in America. She just it seems like an absolutely fascinating um, person. Anyway, it's a really great read and then it's made me download – I think Mary S. Level's got another one called The Riviera Set about socialites on the Riviera. I mean, what's to not love about oh, that? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. so You're I'm just going to be in white pants for the rest of your life, aren't you? Mary S. Level rabbit hole. Oh, that's so good. Hmm. I love those. I, actually, I, I must go back and read another Mitford thing. Every now and again I do have a bit of a um, – <laughs> every now and again I have a um, you know a need to go back there and reconnect. Well, every Mitford 
in and of themselves is a wealthy sort of you could probably spend the next part of your reading life for the next five years only doing Mitford's yeah. their own writing and yeah. the books about them yeah well I've, I've got the American way of life and uh, the American way of birth and the American way of death by Jessica Mitford because right. she went off to America and then just mm. wrote these amazing books critiquing the American funeral system <laughs> like it was just yeah so- so she, she was the communist, wasn't she? Yes, she, she was, ran off yeah, with the yeah. Spanish dude. She wasn't the fascist who may or may not have had some sort of footsie with Hitler. Yeah. That's, That's unity. unity. Who also Diana. shot herself in the head and um, <laughs> oh, had a terrible brain injury. For terrible. Um, OMG. Anyway, it's, it's a super interesting read. Um, while we're on just – actually, we're not even connected at all um, to uh, – um, to the Mitfords, but I just remembered um, a book that a chatter very kindly sent me. Trisha from um, Canberra sent me um, I Feel Bad About My Neck, a collection of um, essays by Nora Ephron. Oh, oh yeah. It's so funny. Is I it? mean, like, okay. just, you know, she's the one that wrote that amazing book, Heartburn, that we've talked about before. Yeah, which I've is got to read about that. the It's about the um, breakdown of, of Nora Ephron's marriage to Carl Bernstein. Like it's just while we're on this kind of like, oh, my God, you were married to whom? And um, – Oh, look who I just got a text from. You what? <laughs> oh, you you made that happen to annoy me. My She's new, got a text message from Helen Garner. I'm not even joking. My new best friend. What are you – why are you Why are you taking up that woman's important time when she could be writing more books? Let me see. I won't read it out. <laughs> no, you know, I would have to do something like bum or something. share it. <laughs> She's just been photocopying a bum and sending it to me. I wish she'd stop it. Stop doing that, Helen. Get more novels, less bum photocopying. Oh, you're a monster. <laughs> anyway, it's so – like I love this woman because – Nora Ephron this is because she's so random. The book Heartburn is like all all about the breakdown of her relationship to Carl Bernstein. It totally destroyed him, of course. And, um, but it's it's interspersed with all these recipes that she just throws in. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny. And um, this this book, I feel bad about my neck, just like wanders around all over the place about, you know, her mother, her crazy mother, and um, there's accounts of her crushes on various food writers that she <laughs> thought she'd one day marry but didn't and anyway have you ever been tempted to write a book of essays like that about because you mostly write on politics but have you yes. ever thought about branching into just observations on stuff i don't know as a book no, of essays? No, i haven't in a word i can't really think of i'd anything. totally read that would you yep okay well give i need some directions so give me a list of like 12 random things yeah that exactly that's and, how and, you'd have to do it i reckon i'd have to just give you like <laughs> Cotton wool. Losing then, pencils. <laughs> go. Losing pencils. 1,200 words. Uncontrollable rage. <laughs> Spitting. Yeah, but go. You, you can't actually do rage now that Helen Garner did that piece in the monthly. Like she just no. – she captured rage. Yeah. She's I done know. rage. It's a busted flush now. I know. Oh, what was I reading the other day and I just thought, oh, God, that's a good idea. Why didn't I – oh, my son is reading um, Rebel Girls. Oh, yeah. And yeah. – it's such a simple idea yeah. and it's so well done. Every time I see it, I go, oh, why didn't Crab and I think of yeah, that? Yeah, there's 100 spin-offs now too. It's like Rebel Girls who have done things with motorcycles. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. And the but, actual Rebel Girls people have just brought out Rebel Girls too. Yeah, they have. More stories for yeah, Rebel Girls. It's unstoppable. It's, called, so. it's a movement. Yeah, it's amazing. It's it's just sold absolutely <laughs> gangbusters and it's great. So I recommend it if you've got 
children of probably, well, mine's six, so six to maybe 11, would that book be? Six to 12. It's awesome. See, here's what's going on. See, now I just Mm -hmm. Googled Nora Ephron to check on the exact title of that book because the book itself, of course, is like sunk under the like pile of rubble on my um, dining room table that is never a dining room table because it's just a storing place for books (laughs) and newspapers. And a couple of bottles of beer. Oh, no. no, Hey, that's Passata, man. That's Kate Knott's Passata from the weekend chatters, you know, um, Passata off. Our friend Gwen bought 60 kilos of tomatoes from Kate Knott. Yeah. Take up almost as much room in her house as our bird pins. I know, right? So, but I think the plan is to get munching and make them into passatas yeah. this weekend, yep. which is uh, a very good idea. But anyway, when I was Googling, um, oh, what's the book of that? What's the exact title of the Nora Ephron book that I so enjoyed from Trisha? Thank you, Trisha. Um, I think, you know, the references at the bottom of Nora Ephron's Wikipedia page just throw up something that I want to listen to immediately. Yeah. Um, Delia Ephron on the closeness and complexity of sisterhood. It's oh. an NPR interview from 2013. Well, I want to listen to that. Is she Nora Ephron's sister? Yeah, she is. Oh. What about that? Oh. I know. There you go. Don't mess with those Ephrons. Um, I have not been watching anything, but mm-hmm. I have just downloaded a ton of episodes of Queer Eye because there is so oh. much buzz around the current season yeah, of Queer Eye. Now, someone was talking to me about this yesterday and I'm like, oh, wow, I thought that was ancient, but it's back. I just keep seeing people talking about it. I think it's season four saying, oh, man, it's unbelievable. I can't Same stop people, crying. And people can't stop crying? Yeah, it's just like constant Chatter about it, and so I feel like I need to watch it. There's also been a lot of talk about that Mardi Gras show that was oh, on yeah. the ABC. What's it called? Riot. Right. I watched that. Yeah. It was oh, great. was it great? Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Cool. yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed it, and it kind of. Um, I don't know. You. I'm not from Sydney, but you're always aware that there was this sort of like very dark history of police brutality in in um, Sydney, and um, it's uh, it's a dramatized program that shows you exactly what happened when they first started the Mardi Gras and it was because the principal organiser had been like organising protests, you know, like protests and no one was turning up because they're like, well, how daggy is that, you know. And so he decided to make it into a party, you know. And on the first Mardi Gras, all of these um, people turned up and there was a truck and, you know, off they went dancing down on Oxford Street. And then they um, arrived at the park and um, the cops tried to shift them on and then there was this full Malay police ambush, people beaten up, just horrible so actually um a friend of mine at the abc um who was involved in the production said that they did a um they did a preview on friday night at the abc because they had this staff function at the abc for lgbqti um employees and they showed the um the film and then they had all these um well, all these, a handful of representatives from the New South Wales Police Force there. Oh. And they actually had this sort of little, like, forum chat afterwards. And uh, my friend said it was amazing because um, a couple of the cops who were there were just crying because they mm. hadn't actually seen the film before. And um, it was really confronting for them to see, you know, what, what, what had happened, like, not so very long ago mm. um, in this city. But, yeah, I really enjoyed it. And it's, it's on iView, I think, for a while. It's definitely worth a look. Speaking of police and crime, I read something that you told me to read ages ago and it just sort of happened across – I just came across it sort of just through total happenstance. It was the judgment in a <sighs> court case. The um, Gatani one? Yes, Simon Gatani. So this was a case where um, a woman – 
was de- found dead at the bottom of a high-rise building in yep. Hyde Park in Sydney and that her partner, Simon Gatani was charged with her murder and the allegation was that he threw her over the edge and yep. he was convicted of that crime ultimately. Anyway, the judgment, you said to me at the time, you should read it, it reads almost like a novel. It's so crisply written and yep. it's just a really interesting story. Um, it absolutely was and the bit that really stuck with me was when at the moment where her body went over the balcony, there were three. This witnesses. is Lisa Harnham is the is the victim. Yep, and she was thrown over a balcony by her then boyfriend, and it was like at five o'clock in the morning or yeah, it was early in the morning. Early, yeah, and it was, it was one yeah. of those apartment buildings that's around the park, park in Sydney. Yeah, so three people saw the body go over the edge, and yeah. each person. Um, the sort of judgment went into, you know, what they were doing and how they saw it and how they reacted and stuff. And so it was really interesting just to see how different people reacted and thinking like what would you do in that circumstance? So the first person saw something go over the edge. He thought, that seems weird. It looks like a bag of clothes or something. Kept He was on the way to work, kept going to work, worked for the day and then ended up bringing the police. He saw, I think, in the news later that a body had gone over and then he thought – wow, that's what I saw, and then subsequently later rang the police and gave a statement, you know, 36 hours, 48 hours, whatever it was, after the event. But then that became a big deal in the trial because the um, defence for Gitani kept saying, well, if you were so convinced it's a body, why did it take you so long to actually ring the police? Yeah, yeah. Um, At what point did you decide it didn't look like a bag of clothes, it was actually a body, and then you thought you'd do something? You clearly weren't that concerned initially. Another one of the witnesses was a 15-year-old boy who was on the way to school. He saw it, thought it was a person, still got on the school bus, but only went one stop and then turned around and came back because he thought, no, I've got to go back there because I'm certain that was a person that just went over the edge. I've got to go and tell police or whatever. But it was just fascinating to me how people – react differently to those sorts of things. Well, um, yeah, and also if you're, by, if you're by yourself and you notice something and you, you can't check with anybody mm. and you think, well, that looked weird but don't weird things happen every day, I'm sure I'm mistaken, it's really it's strange psychologically and I think it comes down to whether you are a person who thinks, oh, it'll probably be all right or if you're a kind of like, no, no, that's definitely – there's something wrong and I'm going to check it out. You know? Or there's a lot of people around so someone else will Oh, yeah, because there's so. a thing called the bystander effect, isn't it? In fact, I was just vaguely Googling to try and remember exactly. What was that case that was in New York, I think? Was it in New York? About the woman who was assaulted and there were like lots of people watching from um, apartments around but because there were so many people – Everybody assumed somebody else would do something and nobody did. Oh, like it's dear. just, I, it's actually like a, I, I can't remember. It. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's quite a famous one that's been sort of studied because of this sort of completely uh, terrible outcome, which is that all these people saw this happen and nobody, nobody did anything. But there's something about a relationship to how many people are watching. It's like, you know, when you're sitting around a swimming pool and there's like 10 adults and, you know, a kid ch- kind of goes under. If you'd had one adult who's, prime responsibility it was to look after that kid yeah you know, um you've probably got a better chance of attention being focused on that kid yeah because if you've got 10 people standing around you think oh someone's watching yeah, yeah. exactly i remember it's also i think when something happens that is really unusual mm. and and just sort of incomprehensible like seeing someone's body yeah. go over a balcony you, you you can think 
I must be mistaken because yeah. that doesn't happen. So yeah. I remember when 9-11 happened, I was watching on television and mm. I was on the phone to my friend Kath because I'd been watching, um, you know, but getting ready to go to bed, had Channel 10 News on and then Sandra Sully crossed to what was going yeah. on. And so I switched in after the first plane had hit and then I rang my friend Kath and said, put on Channel 10, something weird's happening in New York. And as we're sort of talking, they've said, oh, you know, it's a plane, plane's crashed into the World Trade Centre. We're watching and I thought I saw – a second plane crash yep. in. And I said to Cass, what was that? And she said, well, what do you mean? And I said, I think I just saw a second plane go in, but I must be imagining it. I think it's just because they're talking about a first plane's yeah. going in and I think I've just imagined that I saw a plane go in. And then, of course, it turned out a plane had gone in. But immediately I was attempting to sort of rationalise. You were rationalize. talking yourself out of it. Yeah, because yeah. it just seemed like, oh, one plane's gone in, as if a second plane's gone in. I'm just making stuff yeah. up now. So, um, yeah, it was interesting how quickly your brain looks for an explanation that seems more sensible to you, like I just imagined that, than I, I just actually saw a plane fly in. And yeah. I assume with that body going over the balcony that you would have thought, oh, that can't be a body. Yeah. You know, I've so. just seen somebody's bag of laundry go over or whatever. Like, yeah, yeah, but geez, it was very, but the, very the judgment itself is really interesting, I think. It's written by um, Lucy McCallum and it is, it's, it's quite a spectacular piece of writing, but the most um, – structurally significant thing about it is that she's writing it some a lawyer subsequently explained the structure to me she's she's writing the judgment so as to render her judgment invulnerable to appeal right so in these kind of cases there are lots of things that you can appeal as a convicted defendant you know you can um appeal on the basis that the jury weren't um you know, instructed to pay attention to this, that, the other, they were wrongly directed, that, you know, something was missed or that something wasn't explored properly. And the thoroughness and the repetition that kind of runs through this um, at this judgment and the fact that at each point she says, look, I find that this happened or I find that the defendant's um, testimony here was unreliable, you know. And it becomes like a sort of a rhythm, like a drumbeat over the course of this judgment. It's really long, but I remember I started reading it, you know, the day after it was posted and I couldn't stop reading it. Yeah, I it just very I couldn't re- put it down. And I, I, I read it, you know, um, until I was finished at like midnight or something. And the interesting thing, you might know the answer to this, um, it wasn't a jury trial. No, it wasn't. Yeah, how, how do you? Just, as I was saying, thing about the jury, I was thinking, no, actually, yeah. How do you, how do you end up with a murder case that's not a jury trial? Can the defence opt? To, can they ask to not have a jury? Or like, how does that actually happen? I can't. I, I can't remember the rules about how you get one or the other. I think there is some sort of. Can you, can you opt out of a jury? I don't know. Well, you might. I don't know, but it, I mean, it, to me, that's really interesting too, because then you're putting you know the accused's yeah. um, fate rests in the hands of one person. Well. The, the question judge. is, like, if you're if you're running a defence, it would be I can totally imagine that there are circumstances where you'd have a defence that you think, well, that will that will work well for a jury, right? Because um, I'll be able to appeal there's reasonable to doubt or yeah. yeah. But if you, I mean, I would imagine in this case, the the facts of the case are so prejudicial and the sympathies of a group of people would so mm. automatically be with this woman who clearly, like from the evidence, had been monstered by this guy for a period of time. She was um, quite a, a delicate and vulnerable individual. She was from Canada. She was in Australia kind of without her mum or anything. She was kind of, um, you know, 
I don't know, she came across as a person quite in need of protection, you know. She like, did She did love the guy too. Yeah, she did. And he yeah. was very controlling. Yeah. But, I mean, in that sort of circumstance, you'd think as a defence um, lawyer, you'd think, God, any jury is going to immediately have sympathies for this, right. this woman. So how hard is it going to be for me to create a legal argument like um, that will reverse that that um, deep mm. opening prejudice that a jury would have. So that's why you would go for a, a judge, I think, mm. um, because um, they're th- more able a- to be dispassionate and right. To, yeah, yeah. Mm, interesting. But I t- I, on the question of like who gets to decide and what happens, I don't know exactly. Hey, um, further reading. I got to go because I got to get to work in a sec. Yeah. But um, can we just read one of our? Well, we won't read oh, it yeah. aloud. But um, you got you guys might remember last year we both fell in love with this piece. It was in the monthly about AFL names and analysis of the names of players who are in the AFL this season. It's written by a guy called Hugh Robertson. Anyway, we basically pre- ended up reading the whole thing almost aloud and just in sobbing in hysterics by the end of it. So he's just um, this complete football nerd that just goes through the entire draft. And then looks for patterns in the names of players. <laughs> and this year he's actually gone through the um, women's draft as well. So it's like... And we won't read it all, but what was your favourite? <sighs> oh, look, you know, he, he's very good at um, charismatic anti-hero of a historical crime series coming to a Sunday night time slot near you. Curtly Hampton. Flynn Appleby, Dalton Langlands, Lloyd Meek, Cora Staunton, Charlie Spargo, Dyson Heppel, Darcy Guttridge. And there's always, every year there's the um, annual Jaden census, which is, you know, all the different spellings of, oh, Jared, sorry, the annual Jared census with all the different spellings of Jared and whatnot and variations on that. The other one, I mean, look, it's all absolute gold, but also names suitable for the next hipster food craze. You must try the Kirsty Lamb, Kale Kirby, Sean Lemons, Tate Mackerel, Matthew Ling, Bailey Rice, Deanna Berry, Sam Powell Pepper, Devin Smith, Matthew Lewenberger. But you quite liked when nominative determinism goes wrong. Oh, this was too. my absolute favourite. Josh Caddy, Darcy Gardner, Paul Hunter, Zach Fisher, Dan Butler. Oscar Baker, Angus Shoemaker, Callum Porter, Ryan Abbott, Emma King, Charlie Constable, <laughs> Lockie Plowman, Joel Selwood, Rhiannon Metcalf. <laughs> now, yours favourite was... Well, I liked what fresh calumny is this, where they just go through all the Callums, Callum Mills, Callum Moore, Callum Brown. It's is a that great... word pronounced calumny? I, I was calumny. calumny. Oh, my gosh. Is it calumny? I've always said calumny, but it's possible that I'm what putting fr- the emphasis fr- on the wrong syllable. What fresh calumny is this? Calumny? Can someone, like, tweet As us in, or yeah. mess- message us on the Facebook? I'm, I'm going calumny. I put my life on it. But I, now suddenly I don't think why. Reminds, I don't know why. Reminds me I of just saying like, tweet us or whatever. Sorry, just hold that thought. Uh, Chat10looks3.com. Leave us a review on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at Chat10looks3. You can join the Facebook group by Chat10looks3. God, you're good. What else do you like? Um, I also like carrying a bit of baggage. Hugh McLuggage. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, the Eurasio Fantasia Perpetual Trophy for Best New Name, Brandon Zerk Thatcher and Bonnie Too Good. Yes. (laughs) That is so clever in the monthly. I just love the randomness of having that idea and then just making it so good. It's absolutely fantastic. And I loved that so many people immediately like, guys, Uh, this is up. It's like we've been waiting for 12 months for this sucker. All right, got to get out of here. Bye.